Welcome listeners to the 37th episode of Stockholm Legacy Report, a podcast about paper legacy. My name is Victor Bernhardt, with me as always are Robin Svensson and Christopher Wikström, both of them mighty wizards. The very best of welcome to you, dear listeners. Hello, hi, how do you do? Hello everybody, I hope you're doing well. Stockholm Legacy Report can be found every week on the Top Deck app. As posted on social media, last week though was a step away from this every week publishing tempo. Long story short, some things need attention to to the extent that we couldn't record. Sorry about that and welcome back again to another episode. Today we will discuss a recent paper play and convene the basic land connoisseur panel on a deck that has been the talk of legacy town for quite some time now, which is doomsday. Also, we will go into turtle talk. First though, paper play. Christopher, what have you been up to? So due to school, I haven't had too much time to play, but I did manage to squeeze in maybe seven or eight games uh, against my good friend who was on high tide. And I decided to sleeve up Blue Red Delver. And if you haven't played that matchup, it's super fun. It's extremely interesting because, uh, you know, game one, you have some dead cards, no, pseudo dead. I mean, Bolt is not super exciting because that's not how you kill the opponent most of the times. Unholy Heat is quite <laughs> medium as well. But in the post-board games, you get some extremely interaction-heavy like duels. In the list I played, I think I boarded in like Force of Negation, some Pyroblasts, uh, like quite a lot of them actually like surgical extraction to try and get those high tides out of there and it was just extremely fun and it's always a fun dynamic when you're playing against high tide as a tempo deck because when and where to daze is extremely important like he was playing the candle build which uh, makes uh, sometimes dazing a high tide doesn't really accomplish much but those games were super interesting and uh, overall I do think that Blue Red Delver has a slight edge probably probably not against maybe a, a player of Marcus Caliber or something like that but in those games it felt extremely close like I got lethal the turn that I had to and uh, yeah just uh, some really fun games have has any one of you tried that matchup like uh, high tide with versus like a tempo deck i mean these, these are decks with islands in them and uh, i mean i love legacy and all that but uh, this is not something that i have uh, ever eaten i've owned uh, a delver deck in standard some you know it's going to be 10 years ago soon but that's the extent of my experience i have played it a long time ago when when playing like uh, grixis delver you know during the death right probe era and i have probably faced it with canadian as well but that was quite a while i think uh, out of all of those like old school canadian might be the the deck that has probably the strongest uh, matchup against high tide especially if you're playing the winter orbs and stuff like that they do have some sneaky ways to still get mana, like turnabout and stuff like that. But they have to commit on an entirely different level than if they're not playing against Winter Orb. But uh, if you're comparing that to the like raw efficiency of the the new Delver builds with you know DRCs and uh, like you can just squeeze a really heavy Merc Tide out there. It's it's uh, a kind of clock and card selection that Delver hasn't really had. So you, 
like a lot of the games I said I sent a picture in our discord where I was like so I'm playing against high tide and I think I had two pyroblasts free forces a daze and something else it was just like extremely like but but he was he was one counter spell away from beating that which is insane yeah so uh, yeah it was extremely that is fun insane. I must ask you if you play the spell pierces in the main. I don't play spell pierces at all, actually. I did. I I played a version that was quite similar to what I played last time, like very few adjustments. So uh, I don't play spell pierces, and I'm still sticking to my gun of brazen borrower, which I think perhaps should be like a young pyromancer or something, but. Yeah, I'm I'm still with the kind of week one post Ragaman ban decklist, which uh, I mean it's the shell that's powerful. Like whatever flavor you're having in it won't really make the biggest differences, I think. Yeah. But the spell pierces, I do think that they are really strong, and depending on how how the meta shakes out, and where we might get into that later, some some other avenues of attack might need to get implemented into this deck. We'll talk more about that later. So, uh, Victor, did you have any time to play in Legacy? Well, I mean, I was the one causing most of the disruption in the recording schedule last week, so it is no surprise that it impacted my play as well. I am sort of regularly the, the weeknights arbitra for me currently still. I thought um, that was going to shake up a bit, but it hasn't. So I'm looking forward to sort of restrictions now lifted. We might get our first sort of Saturday, Sunday tournament soon. That's probably going to be good for me. But also this makes it sort of twice as nice for me to <laughs> to listen to what you guys have been up to. I have, though, been talking shop a bit behind the scenes, discussing sort of uh, newer post-Kamigawa uh, introduction death and taxes lists, for example. And I've actually purchased some new cards that are on the way in the mail. So um, that's fun. That's good. What did you get? What did you get? Uh, I'm not. I'm not telling. Of course, I got. I got myself a lion sash <laughs> because you know obvious, obvious inclusion. But I have also. I'm looking at a Ganjos and getting the Ursa Saga artifact package together. Timeless Dragon. All these interesting sort of you know niche one-offs that people are trying and uh, to sort of what seems to be success. And I think it's time to, for me to finally sort of lock those horns in and get out there and play this deck that apparently does seem to be very good. So Robin, what about your week? So I have actually played two weeks of uh, Legacy at the local game store since we had our last recording. And I have been playing 8-cast in both of those uh, events. So uh, the week before last week, I played my old trusty... A two fire and ice build and I faced death and taxes Jessica control four color control with Uro and a track and I went two and two and lost to the control decks and uh, yeah I've been having some trouble with with the control decks playing eight cost especially if there's hull breachers involved and uh, like all of the removal package that they are playing it can be really troublesome when you're trying to like resolve a haymaker that is going to do all the things for you and they just remove it so that's been a little bit rough then in between i watched the SG tour and watched uh, bob huang playing with the karns in it so i switched up a little bit for last week's playing 
and uh, featured two, no, three Karn the Great Creators. And I also did a little bit of changing in the in the mana base to fit a fifth soul land in form of a city of traitors. So I was hedging a little bit on the control decks and uh, I faced red green lands, Jeskai control again, reanimator and then the eight cast mirror where the Karn obviously was very good but I didn't manage to win any of these matches <laughs> I, had, I had a quite a, a oh man <laughs> it, it was a beating my, my deck didn't cooperate I mulliganed a lot and uh, I think I was just not in the right like mood to get any W's so that, that was a, a failed experiment with the Karn the Great Creator but it was not Karn's fault I must say that I I was losing. It was uh, just variance and maybe some bad play on my part. Do you have any um, strategies moving forward? I think I may have some Ninja Turtle strategies moving forward. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Talk to me about turtles, both of you. I mean, this is something that's just like, it has you guys written all over it. Bring it, bring it. I think you need to start, Christopher. Yeah, so let's let's just first unpack this a bit because we did the whole uh, potentially in legacy uh, episode uh, last time. We talked about cards that we were excited about in Neon Dynasty, but we didn't talk about Neon Dynasty Commander, which has two so far two bangers in it that has sparked a lot of emotion and uh, discussion. And one is not that cool like it's sort of cool uh, we're not going to talk too much about it the swift reconfiguration the build build a car out of your marit kind of deal but the card we're talking about mostly is kappa cannoneer which is a six drop you're thinking a six drop drop in legacy is quite crazy but it has improvise so you can tap any artifact to help pay this cost besides that it has ward four and it's a 4-4 artifact creature, Turtle Warrior. So this uh, this little turtle lives by the warrior code. And uh, the most impressive or oppressive thing about this whole card is the last ability, which is whenever an artifact enters the battlefield under your control, put a plus one plus one counter on Kappa Cannoneer and it can't be blocked this turn. So this is insanely crazy due to it triggers itself on entering the battlefield. Whenever you play a land, that's a seed of the Synod, it triggers. If you have a Psy in play, it will just grow like crazy. And it can't be blocked. Like, you can't... If you're an Elf player, you can't shump your way out of this. Like, if this gets into play, you, you're you not sure how many more turns you have in the game. And uh, we've seen... A lot of people brewing a lot with this card and trying it out in 8-cast, in Affinity, in Bomberman. Like, in 8-cast, it's going to be such a banger. Because right now, like you talked about, Robin, the deck is very... Both power, but that comes mostly from the Ursa Saga tokens or like the Psy going wide and drawing cards. So if you're playing against a Hullbreacher deck or Narset, or if you don't really get too much going. It might be hard to close the game. Like when you start slowing down with eight cast, it feels terrible. And this card 
when it hits the battlefield, the opponent doesn't know how many turns they have left to live. But most of the times, probably two to three turns. Like, like I mentioned, this card slots extremely well into other decks as well, like Bomberman, where you can just do a, an LED loop, which grows this infinitely, and it's like unblockable. Not to mention Ward 4, which means that whenever this gets targeted by a spell or ability, the opponent, like, the opponent has to pay 4 mana, or it gets countered. So when this is in play... Swords to Plowshares is 5 mana to get through. Bolt, which this is probably going to be out of range for forever, like a double bolt. That's like 10 mana to do the double bolt. Red Elemental Blast. No, no, sorry. The only card that this is, is kind of weak to, besides the normal kind of Haymaker mass removal, like Terminus or Supreme Verdict, is uh, Seeds of Innocence. Because Meltdown, you have to pay x is 6 to get this so it's just extremely strong and versatile what do you think robin yeah i'm uh, i'm really keen on trying this card out obviously i think it's a it's a real control deck killer it's going to be great against all the fair decks that are are going to have to make five land drops before they remove it from the game and that is uh, exactly what you want to be doing so you can like bait out the forces of wills with the chalices and uh, your legends and then eventually slam this onto the battlefield and just have a very fast clock so i'm looking forward to seeing how it's going to be performing obviously the like the the improvise is uh, is making it a lot easier to cast but it's not affinity so it's not going to be as easy to cast as, for example, Thought Monitor, where like your opals and your seats tap for two mana. Here they only tap for one. So it's going to be a little bit slower than those cards. So when I'm going to try to fit it into the deck, I think I will keep the Thought Casts as a bridge, so to say, to when you can cast your Kappa. And I will be going down on Thought Monitors rather, I think. And uh, in my testing, the like uh, Emery has been rather weak against the fair decks it's obviously very strong against the unfair decks where you can like loop uh soul guide lantern or something like that but against the fair decks it's usually just bounced with a caracas or or plowed or or bolted or blasted or it dies to anything so i think that that will be my cuts in in the eight cast deck i was gonna say that's one less plow for uh, kappa but then again that's a high cost to get up to due to the ward but what i think is also really good with this um, with this card is uh, how well it plays like if it sticks in play how extremely well it also plays with a chalice on one because even if you are playing against a control deck and they are getting up to five they have this other thing that they have to take care of first and most of the kappa decks are going to be force of will decks also so when you have to fight against, uh, uh, like over a certain spell, you just have to pick the right battle to fight. So yeah, I think I think you also made a good point about the uh, thoughtcasts because thoughtcast is one of those spells that you can play like turn one or two quite easily, and then just to uh, curve into this is very nice. Exactly, it w- it will provide the like the ammunition to to get enough artifacts to tap for all the six. Yeah. So there are, there are extremely, like, the thing that's really cool about this card that uh, separates it a lot from, let's say, Psy, is that Psy triggers on cast. 
So you get a one month after whenever you cast an artifact. And this is just ETB under your control. So just playing Seat of Synod triggers it. Uh, whenever you actually have Sy in play and you play a, a, like an, ar- an artifact, you get two triggers on this. And don't forget Legacy's new sweetheart, Ursa Saga. It's uh, creating extremely big constructs already, but it also makes this unblockable for the turn end. The clock is going to be extremely real. I think uh, when I built 8cast, I did have the red splash in, but the moment I saw Kappa Cannoneer, I cut the splash and moved into mono blue. And now I've seen some really interesting affinity lists running Esper Sentinels and stuff like that, which might also be super cool because then you're taxing the opponent in other ways as well, like threatening card draw and stuff like that. So uh, yeah, this this card is extremely cool. Yeah, I really like uh, Esper Sentinel, but I wonder where they like where do they get the slots from because that like the deck is so tight now and you're starting to cut like the the obvious four offs down to three offs or something like that to fit the kappa. So I'm going to stick with mono blue for now, I think. And uh, I don't I'm not I'm not sure if the red splash is needed now when you have kappa, but it, it's possible that like decks like elves and uh, possibly lands is still really tough because they can just maze your kappa, right? Yeah, if they pay for. Oh right, oh right. What I'm thinking is that currently the the turtle is going into it's being iterated within existing shells. Of course, I understand that because you really want this in eight cast, for example. Like it's a given. But I'm just thinking like. Can you put this in a deck that's basing itself around, you know, equipments? What about pure steel paladin? What about sort of the other range of artifacts that are not the the eight cost artifact suite? Uh, is there other things that you can do as well? I mean, Ornithopter has a zero mana cost. Does this new artifact dig through time suddenly become interesting? Actually, because it finds artifacts and not blue cards, as we discussed, and other people have have brought up as well uh, in our last episode. So I think uh, this might be a card that's not only so good as you say on surface, sort of it slots into existing decks and seems to be performing quite well. But also, are we going to see new things come out of this? That's what I'm excited to look for. Like, what else can you do, basically? How does this work in a Karn deck? Looking forward to developments here. This is the type of uh, card design also that I like to see. Like, this card is obviously powerful, but it's not going to break anything in half in and of itself, I think. Sweepers exist. Some of them are very good, etc. Yeah, I think where how this ties up the room nicely is that if, you're, if you are playing the 8-cast, you are a Chalice Force deck. So you do have some game against combo a lot of the time. And what this creates is a single card that's very strong. Uh, to close the game compared to maybe Psy that's also like sure both of them are reliant on other artifacts to do what they want but this is just going to stick in play for the first five turns if they don't terminus or stuff like that if it resolves it's in there but one thing that you mentioned like uh, when we're talking about archetypes and you know other things than the pre-existing ones I have seen extremely cool takes on Bomberman with this card. Um, because as you can see in the mana cost, it costs six, which is an even number, which 
is a thumbs up for Garuda. And uh, oh my god, yes, yes. The, the really interesting things that I've seen is I saw this uh, Bomberman list that didn't play Ballista in the main, but instead it played four patchwork automaton, which is also mm. from Kamigawa Neon Dynasty, which is Kappa Jr. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, heard it, you heard it here. So it's a two mana one one with ward two, but it has. Whenever you cast an artifact spell, put a plus one plus one counter on Patchwork Automaton. So it's kind of like Baby Kappa. But what it does, <laughs> which is really cool, is both this and the Kappa goes infinite with the Bomberman loop. And um, like just this is a massive creature. And uh, I do think that it, it can reinvent some some decks that might have fallen out of favor like bomberman has uh, kind of had i would say a, a hard time finding how to exactly play it like before the companion change garuda was all over the place with the bomberman builds now we shifted away from garuda for a while and people started playing like 80 card yorian bomberman and stuff <laughs> like that which is crazy but I mean, it put up results and it, it seemed to work. But what this, like Neon Dynasty, Kappa and the Patchwork Automaton, I think it allows the deck to go back down to 60 cards and play a really tuned, beat down Bomberman deck with Garuda. So I think, I think uh, it's reinventing Bomberman a bit as well, which I'm excited about because Bomberman is such a cool combo. Yeah, one thing that I'm happy about when it comes to Kappa, I mean, some people are already saying that it's like the new true name nemesis. It's it's impossible to deal with, but it asks quite a lot from your deck to be able to play it. It's not a true name that you can just throw into any blue deck. Since you need you need artifacts to pay for the improvise, and like the like the the ward four is not equal to the the true name uh, protection from everything, both because in the real lame game. Like the ward isn't really doing anything. So it has like this slot in the early game where you need to power it out and you need to like pump it really fast and turn it sideways a couple of turns. Otherwise than that, it's not going to be so strong anymore. So I think it's it's quite a tuned card in that sense that it doesn't really just benefit all of the blue decks at once. It, it, it goes into a very dedicated decks. Let's put on the ceremonial robes and gather the basic land connoisseur panel once again. Doomsday has been riding high for some time now. Uh, so for you who are thinking of picking up this deck and for you who are playing it but feel lost in the key decision on what basics to play, we are here to give advice. Robin, we're going to start off with you. What lands do you have for Doomsday? When I bought Doomsdays, I bought the version from the 25th anniversary set. So this is by Noah Bradley and it's the like very red, weird, like 
dark spheres almost looking like planets or moons circling. Early 21st century black metal album cover. Very berserk manga. You could definitely say that. So this is like the art of doomsday that I am uh, that I am uh, thinking about when when picking the lands because these lands are supposed to ac- accompany this this doomsday. And uh, I know that we're supposed to to pick a, a plains no not a plains an island <laughs> and a swamp of course. But I would also like to to throw in uh, a mountain here because uh, Grixis doomsday has been a little bit back and forth and. At this point, I think it's a little bit being played, actually, uh, with the new, like, temp- tempo versions with uh, Dragon's Raid Channeler and that kind of s- cards. So I picked uh, two lands and one sort of extra land that goes very well with this Doomsday. So this is the mana symbol lands from Theros Beyond the Death. So it's the 2.52 by Sam Burley and 2.51 also by Sam Burley. And then the honorable mention to the mountain that has a color that is really like in sync with these doomsday cards. So I'm not usually a, a fan of like like basic lands that doesn't really look like lands. But I think if you play this sort of metal version of doomsday with this card, I think you can sort of uh, you can play these basics and uh, and hold your head up high because they are are looking really cool together with this with this art. What do, what do you what do you think, guys? No, I can really get behind that. I mean, of course, the, that doomsday art as these lands, I think, would be highly divisive in opinions for people. Like some people will think that these look absolute bonkers; these are great. Others will say this is too much of a break with tradition uh, for them to stomach. But since you want to find lands that match this very very particular art that the doomsday art is. And I also think, specifically for paper play, I think that these lands actually look really good when they're sitting on the battlefield. I mean, when you look at so when you look online at magic cards, you're you're very much in tune to a specific format on how things are, how big the art piece of the card is. I mean, the proportions are sort of pre-programmed into you, and anything that deviates from that, without being sort of a full art art piece, might sort of rub you the wrong way i mean this is something else this is a full a full card piece of art but it's not depicting anything other than a mana symbol which is unique for this suite of lands i would say but again with with the doomsday that you picked in paper i think uh, this checks out i think uh, these lands also have like a, a landmark feel because in my opinion when these lands came out was the first time that Doomsday was actually a real playable deck with the printing of Fasa's Oracle as well, which is from the same set. So I think, uh, I think there's some flavor win there as well. And don't at me, people who are like, but you could build really in- intricate piles and stuff like that. <laughs> Get out of here. Like, just pick up a real storm deck. Shots fired. <laughs> pick up a real storm deck. Oh my God. Like, uh, you know when I picked out my uh, Acerac, like the Lost Man of Fandelver flow chart? Like, I don't want someone at my LGS picking out their pile chart and be like, oh, so I, I'm playing against this and I've seen this card and they have like subsections of piles. And I'm like, judge. <laughs> but yeah, like, I think these, these lands, they do 
have the same kind of feeling like that enchanted feeling that Pharos always has that I also experience with Fasus Oracle. Like, sure, Fasus Oracle might look quite vanilla, might be looking at a pearl or something, but that pearl, it might be the last globe that is depicted in the doomsday pile, if you're looking at that. So I, I, I agree. I think this is nice. I'm not going to hate one thing that I liked that you said, uh, Victor, was that like this is not full art. This is full textbook. <laughs> so who's up next, Christopher? What, what's your choice? So uh, I decided to... I had actually picked a different land than my final choices, but I got so inspired by, by a certain card in the deck, Ideas Unbound, which for me is such a, what can you say, iconic card in the deck. And uh, I also noticed that the island that I had picked was by the same artist that had made Ideas Unbound, which is Mark Tedin. So I actually picked both of my lands from Shards of Alara, which are the Grixis Island and the Grixis Swamp. So both of them are by Mark Tedin. The island is, uh, it looks like it might have been some sort of old building, or maybe it's just super sharp rocks. It's impossible to tell what exactly it is. Is it like a decayed building? Is it just rocks? Is it bones? But doomsday has happened here. Like, it's past. And uh, it looks like the air looks <laughs> not really breathable. There's no real good space to be comfortable in this picture. Like, you can't sit anywhere. The waves aren't really cooperating with you as well. Like, this whole picture just for me, screams something went wrong. And you're drawing energy from this. But how? Like, only a Doomsday deck can really do that to finish the game. And the same is true. And that's that's version 237 of Shards of Alara. And the Swamp is version 239 of Shards of Alara. And this is just the same thing. It's a wasteland of bones and decay. And this is kind of like the the what can you say uh, when you're walking a tightrope of playing doomsday because you're putting yourself down to such an extreme low life total that either you or your opponent is going to walk away from here uh, from this place that you've put yourself in and uh, i just i just think that i went super hard on market mark to deem because i really enjoy ideas unbound and these lands really fit doomsday in my opinion so what do you think? Well, uh, let me just start. I I I think they are really good-looking lands, and and they certainly capture the like the doomsday feel and like that. And uh, I'm really curious because I didn't play during the during this era when these lands were new. What was this set about? Like the, it it looks so so like. Uh, tell me what what was the lore about? Oh, the lore that might be tricky, but in. Uh... If you're just looking at what the what the set was like about play-wise, you had five shards. You had Esper, you had Grixis, you had Naya, you had Bant, and then you had which one? Which one? Jund. Jund. Oh yeah, Jund, the menace of standard. And then yeah, then later in uh, Khan's block, we got the the five last shards. But these both both of these lands are from the Grixis. I've harked about this a lot before, but I think the Esper lands are extremely beautiful because they are just shape porn. <laughs> like they're 
they're just super symmetrical and they don't look natural at all. They look extremely artificial. And the Grixis is all about unearthing uh, things, reusing dead creatures. And uh, like these lands have a lot to do with, like their, their ability, like unique ability was unearth, which is also a card. And it does pretty much the same. Uh, for the unearth cost, you get to put the creature back into play with haste and then you exile it. I think, from the graveyard. So it's like a flashback, but not as strong as Disturb. I mean, I will say, uh, just sort of, I guess, <laughs> repeating what, what, what Robin said, I, I really love these choices. As you say, these feel really sort of post-doomsday, even, I mean, post-apocalyptic, post-nuclear. Like, something went down here and there is no way possible anything is living uh, in any way in these pictures. Quite the contrary. Everything is just completely broken. And... I really like that. And also, I, I mean, the whole, both of these images, like the first very stormy, fractured island with the water from these high waves running super nicely over these small cliffs as well on one of these uh, sort of islets, I guess. Uh, very nice detail. And this swamp with sort of this broken building in the background, these sharp piles of bones and the sort of almost dried up river in the front. They both have these extremely extremely interesting gray tinge to them like there's this gray film of ash that sort of lies on top of these pieces and i think that's just so wonderfully executed by mark Tedin. and i think they would fit super well in a doomsday build so uh, i am i'm here for this so here for this yeah nice picks now when you said it one thing that i really like about these uh, that this is during daytime on yeah. both of these pictures. <laughs> and they're so midday. dark. It's midday. Like the sun is up on both of them. But you don't want to go outside. This is one of those days where you're just picking up your blankie. You're like, I'm going to be a couch tomato today. <laughs> Potato, I mean, not tomato. Like, <laughs> what the fuck is that? But enough of that. Victor, you have to walk us down your thought process. So... I went for the, and sort of stick with me here, I went for the Innistrad Crimson Vow, the Moonlit Lands. And these are essentially the completely black and white basics. Uh, because you had, Innistrad had some, uh, Midnight Hunt had some full art black and white lands, basic lands, but had sort of colors in the text box, I think, and uh, the mana symbols had colors. These are completely black and white. And I'm rolling with the, because... If I would play Doomsday, I would play the M25 version of Doomsday because I am a person who tends to, on principle, play the newest iteration of basically any card I can get my hands on. And if I were to do that, I would need to sort of lean into the interesting art direction of, of early 21st century metal albums when you start, people started doing things digitally, like digital album cover art looked a lot like Doomsday OM25. So I wanted basic lands that matched that general direction of this could be album cover or sort of inside booklet cover from you know dark black metal or death metal albums. And these black and white pictures uh, from Innistar Crimson Vow really has that sort of hyper dramatic feel to them so the island is is card number 409 in this set uh, made by rio chrisma and the swamp is 
for 10 by Kirby Rosanes. And um, they're quite different in sort of what they depict. The island sort of has this, is it a waterfall in the background? This kind of doomed, gloomed lake that seems to have been constructed from what's perhaps a crater to begin with. And sort of where and where and time has made this into some sort of semi-waterfall lake structure. Whereas the swamp is a swamp with huge fuck of trees that you just see the bottom trunks of that just goes on forever and ever. You can imagine there is in the background these you, you get a sense of how much these trees would stretch up. And there's this tiny person standing next to one of these trunks. You can just get a sense of how, how extremely large these trees are. But everything just looks really dead. And the black and white sort of the technique used here, I think, uh, looks out like pencil and uh, other sort of just black pen uh, techniques. And that gives it a very sort of dead feeling. And I wanted to capture that same that you got in your lands, Christopher, that sort of post-apocalyptic doom has occurred. Yeah. What do you think? I have not really looked at these lands before, and uh, I guess I have lo- just like waved them off because they were like <laughs> just black and white. But especially this swamp is really beautiful, in my opinion. It it's a uh, quite a piece of art, and uh, yeah, I, I also think that they certainly have this uh, very like uh, dark and uh, and uh, ominous, like it's uh, yeah, like this. Um... What can you say? This uh, evil presence, kind of in both of them, it's just screaming exactly. all over the place. Yeah, they 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 accompany a card like Doomsday very well. I do like the uh, the person that you mentioned in the swamp walking in the background. Um, <laughs> that might be the malevolent hermit who died and then was like, "Oh, time to get back to work," and then just. <laughs> ascends from the swamp and starts walking to work like gotta clock in that nine to five but <laughs> i do i do really like this and it's <laughs> it's super interesting that like the the island looks less alive than the swamp yes That's rarely the case yes yeah this island is super dead yeah and like it's it's also so at the same time like it's not detail heavy, but also at the same time, due to it being so like, what can you say, robustly written, like drawn, it has like, you, you always look at new things when you're looking at it. And it's, it's kind of lo- like a, a Rorschach test when you're just seeing different things, like different shapes in the water and in the cliffs. It's really pretty. And the, the waterfall or whatever it is in the middle kind of looks like a skull. <laughs> well, that's what you see in your Rorschach picture for sure. <laughs> One of what that says about you. I'm like, this is an underground sea, really, isn't it? <laughs> no, but like, <laughs> another thing with that is that since these are black and white, when you do black and white art, or I guess more commonly black and white photography, what happens is that you have to, you're forced to ask, a viewer of that piece of art you have to look at new things because your eyes will be drawn to to other things than usual let's say for example there is this tree in the background of this island if that tree had sort of um had its leaves painted bright green say like this this picture would be something completely different you don't get a sense from it currently 
that it has sort of a bright green leaf. On the contrary, you think that this is probably a dead tree. But if you if you were to add sort of a pale blue color to this water, or if you, the, the sky, which looks very dark right now, if that was made in reds to, to sort of indicate the sunset, this would become a completely different picture that would look sort of a lot more homey. And I think um, that's an interesting experiment you can do uh, with any art to sort of look at this art in black and white. What else do you see? And I think uh, these were good examples of that. So, uh, yeah, that's what I would put in that deck. I tried flipping the the island upside down to see if the waterfall would still look like a waterfall, but it didn't. Uh, kind of. Kind of. I think it kind of does. But yeah, great picks, Victor. I must ask you, Christopher, which, uh, which Doomsday would you play in your Doomsday deck? I'm playing the, the Weatherlight versions. And... Uh, mm. For me, it's just due to like what I have. I've heard a lot of discourse over the art, but since it's one of those cards that's on the stack a long time, maybe I should consider <laughs> thinking about my option. But I'm actually of the r- rare school, I think, that I really prefer the Weatherlight because it reminds me a lot of Berserk, uh, the, the manga, where the god hand of five different overworldly beings are summoned in this eclipse and just bring cataclysm and uh, it reminds me too much of that to not play that version and i wouldn't change it for anything i think and the chance you would play the amonkhet invocation that might be the worst actually like that's the that's the metal cover album of an of an album i would never listen to either get out of here (laughs) Well, that is all we have for this week. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you hate our art analysis, please do get in touch over in the Discord server. Link can be found in the description of this episode. If you like the podcast, you can also sort of feel free to tell us that in the same Discord or even better, telling someone else. You can also reach out to us if there are aspects of Paper Legacy that you would want us to cover that we haven't talked about on this here podcast. In addition to Discord, you can hit us up on Twitter. We are at STHLM Legacy. We are also present personally on some social media as well. Robin, where can our listeners find you? Uh, Well, if you hate my basic land, you can find me on the Discord server. Trust me, you can find him there other ways as well. And uh, you can find me at MonolithMTG. And uh, yeah, write, write to me if you're a Weatherlight stan. And you can hit me up at Disco Drogo on Twitter with uh, any of these uh, inputs. And that concludes the 37th episode of Stockholm Legacy Report. Thank you, Robin Svensson and Christopher Wikström. Warm thank you for listening. The Great Frenus has written our music. You can find their work on Spotify. Until next time, remember that doom is just what the doctor ordered.